Welcome to Blacklisted Remarks. I'm your host, Nick Stumphauser, here with my co-host, Spencer Field. And this is the show where we talk about the things you don't talk about at the dinner table, the things that make you squirm, that make you think. Yeah, heaven forbid you think at the dinner table. That's not what right. the dinner table's for. Not what it's for at it's all. It's for eating. And, exactly. And looking nice in front of the in-laws, not for having real conversations. Gossiping. No. Today's discussion is called The Path to Determinism. Spencer and I have had a similar conversation to this. Well, I can't predict the future. Oh, more than one. Yes, more, more than one conversations like this uh, in the past. And we agree uh, almost to the finish line, and then we diverge at some pretty interesting and pretty crucial points. Uh, so today, the structure that I am proposing to Spencer, he's the first time he's hearing this, is that we... Uh, break down the syllogism sort of that we've used to convince people in the past of uh, determinism you know do play a little devil's advocate go back and forth on that a little bit just laying out the foundation for why we believe that there is no such thing as free will and then get into the interesting stuff and that is where we might diverge or disagree on determinism I'll sign off sound good so to begin uh, where, where would you like to begin? I, I'd say that um, for the audience, you should probably define our terms. What yeah, is not a bad idea. I would have, uh, what, what terms did we come up with last time? We had the Nictionary and the... Spensicon? The Spensicon. The Dictionary and the I've Spensicon. Been, as, as Nick has been trying to figure out how to make the SD card work in our in our audio recorder, Spencer has been uh, the Spensiconing and uh, writing up all his, his terms. He's come up with several different definitions. Uh, there's actually more types of determinism than I originally thought. I mean, there are many flavors of determinism. There are. I, yes, there I are. would equate determinism to pudding, and then all of the different <laughs> flavors, subcategories of, of pudding we have. We have peach pudding, and we have chocolate pudding. Peach it, pudding? Yeah, there's even some, like, um, like pomegranates in here. Which is, I've never heard of peach pudding. Yeah. Well, I believe the flavor pudding of determinism that you and I agree on would be considered hard determinism. Yeah, it, well, it's either hard determinism or causal determinism, right? depending on who you want to listen to. Yes. Would you like to define hard determinism for us? Sure. I'm trying to find a hard determinism definition and not a causal, because they are slightly different. Hmm. Okay. Um, my favorite resource, the one that, which got me through college, <laughs> the most impactful resource on the planet, Wikipedia itself. Hard determinism or metaphysical determinism is a view on free will which holds that determinism is true and that it is incompatible with free will and therefore that free will does not exist. And hard determinism goes on to say that if you had unlimited mathematical calcul calculation, calculable abilities and you knew all the information you needed to know, you could uh, project both backwards into mm -hmm. the past knowing everything which was going on explain the entire moment as it exists and then project into the future and that reality is inescapable mm -hmm. as all things deal with a physical presence or a chemical presence I, at right. the end of the day it's all it's essentially materialistic perspective right. of the world uh, this sort of goes back to the idea of Newtonian determinism uh, which uh, at its most basic part um, the universe is particles and energy embroidered upon time, and uh, each particle or wave or, or aspect of the universe has a trajectory, a velocity, a, a nature, and uh, Laplace um, 
postulated his his it's called demon his mm -hmm. boss's demon where yep. if you could take a snapshot of the universe and you were a he said demon but if you were just a, a superhuman intelligence capable of uh, ingesting all this information like you said you could project forward and backward and you could know uh, everything um, you bring up another really good point and that is um, it's inescapable um, another word is it's inevitable and the best way that I've heard it described, um, hard determinism, is, you know, people say, like, oh, I should have done that, or I shouldn't have done that, you know, I wish I had thought of this. Uh, as if they had gone back in time, they could have done that. When uh, what hard determinism really postulates is that whether you went back again, or one trillion times, or an infinite number of times, you could not have done otherwise. Right. Uh, so that'll be a later discussion, but that um, brings some interesting questions to light about moral culpability. If you could not have done otherwise, are you morally responsible for your actions? Uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So for the audience, that is what hard determinism is. That's what Spencer and I currently ascribe to. Uh, and how did we get there? How did we get there? I think, I don't know how you got there. I mean, we've had conversations about your path. I think my path it divulges a little bit. And even though we've had conversations in the past where we, it's been essentially Nick and I versus a group of everybody else, <laughs> and most of the time it's us arguing with each other and everybody right. else watching and kind of yes. like sipping beers and wondering what we're doing, mm -hmm. on rare occasions, somebody... For the, for the record, I'm not sipping the beers. Oh, no, no, Nick's not sipping the beers. I'm sipping, sipping my beer right. and everybody else is sipping their beer. Yes. And uh, Nick's there sipping air. Yes. And it's very refreshing activity. Beautiful air. And... <laughs> gorgeous especially the fall air these yes. days and others will chime in right. and, and answer and ask questions or whatnot mm -hmm. oftentimes we'll answer either all of them or the vast majority right. of them and then somebody will say i now subscribe to your line of thinking right. or they'll lock down yeah my favorite part is when they come back the next week and said yeah whatever you said last week was stupid i thought about <laughs> it and i'm now off the boat and it's like keeping yeah. cats from jumping off a boat so i think actually i'm gonna i'm gonna restructure this just a smidge and say, I think you're further down hard determinism than I am. I would not be surprised if that's the case. That's true for almost everything we hold. Correct. Is Nick has taken whatever I think, or I've <laughs> taken whatever Nick thinks, and I've backed up about 16 steps. Yeah. Nick's like, no, over here, the more extreme version. I'm like, but I don't know. I can see. Yeah. Like, I'm willing to go walk down that road. I'm just not willing to end up as far as you do. So right. I think the path to my, my journey to where I am on the deterministic freeway was looking at how the universe works and then going back and reading a lot. For me, it was a lot about psychology. Right. And reading about how humans make determinations and how much the subconscious actually influences what we do. And at the end of the day, trying to understand what influences the subconscious and seeing that so much of it is chemical. Yeah. And there was one study which I should have pulled up for this conversation, but it, what individuals would do is they would stick somebody of a high spiritual bent into an fMRI mm -hmm. and they would say all right you know spin yourself up go find Jesus you know pull Allah down here right. go for a dance um, and so they they my favorite part they showed some video clips of, of the camera hidden in the side of the room it probably wasn't hidden and that there were, they had this uh, black gospel southern like southern person in the room with a big white robe on just waving the hands around clapping you know calling down the spirits phenomenal. Um, and so they, they scanned their brain and they did some, all sorts of other measurements trying to figure out which chemicals were bouncing yeah. around in their head. So they took them out of the room and they said, all right, put Jesus away, like calm down, like let's back to reality now. 
And then they were able to reinduce that feeling, yep. which most people hold to be the most sacred feeling they yeah. ever feel. And as soon as I saw the results, I like I'm not one to skip ahead in a book. I will start mm-hmm. at chapter one. I might skip things, but I will never skip to the end of the book. I skipped to the end of that study yeah. to see what the the results were, and they right. weren't able to exactly reproduce because our targeting is down to the tens of thousands of neurons, not right. the individual neurons. But it was enough to convince me that you could pretty much recreate yeah. anything else. And then that kind of led me down the rabbit trail of, well, if we keep backing up and more and more is determined, mm-hmm. I'm willing to put the determinism button on my on my jacket. Maybe not on my lapel, but potentially <laughs> on my pocket. Not a lapel pin determinist, but no, a... a pocket lapel pin. A varsity player. A varsity... Oh, just, varsity, but that's good. on your jacket. That's good. Nick, how did you walk down this road? Where did you start, and how did you end up where you are? Oh, uh, right. Uh, determinism was a very scary prospect for me for a long time. It's terrifying. Um, I was introduced to the concept of Newtonian determinism multiple years ago, and wholeheartedly rejected it at first, um only out of fear. It made complete sense, but I, I rejected it out of fear because, uh, um, the and this is something that I, I wanted to throw in uh, a couple minutes ago when you are talking about uh, doubt on tap when you and I have these roundtable discussions um, and just how averse people are to this idea of free will and how, like you said, they might be on board with it at first and then they'll come back the next week and, and their body will have, you know, vomited out the poison yes. of the idea. Because, rejected that. Uh, because it's painful, you know, it's it's disconcerting and, and discomforting um, so I rejected that for a long time as well and um, down my path toward atheism I was ingesting a lot of information um, about determinism and I think evolution was probably this is a little bit of confabulation but until my brain tells me I'm bullshitting I'm gonna keep going down this path I think uh, my path to determinism was evolution I, I'm pretty sure that was and I've done uh, extensive research on evolution. I've written a pretty lengthy paper and um, engaged in a lot of debates. Far from an expert, but I'm comfortable with the concept and uh, ready to defend it. And when you, you really examine evolution, you see that uh, everything that is, that's alive, that's breathing right now, is pure accident, and it's, it's chance. Uh, and that's on the macro scale, you know? just why are there trees why why do you have brown hair why do i have brown hair blue eyes whatever it is that's just pure genetic accident nobody picked that that was because of the state of the universe and because of chance but then you start looking like you said at the brain and at uh, different studies Um, the study that you brought up was very good my favorite go-to study is the soon study and Mm -hmm. spencer and i have talked about this uh, multiple times before um, but just for the audience, I'll explain that in a moment. Just a little disclaimer, uh, fMRI scans uh, are not 100% accurate. Their results are not 100% accurate. It is a science that is being refined, but so far, this is where the evidence indicates. And as all good scientists would say, prove me wrong. So to the audience at large, go to prove me wrong. But uh, so far, the SOON study, S-O-O-N, it's an acronym for something I cannot remember, was uh, a study where a person was put into an fMRI, a, uh, what is it, something functional magnetic? Functional resonance magnetic imaging. Yeah, yeah, fMRI. Yeah. And uh, what that does is that allows you to see the blood capillaries in the brain and where the blood rushes to and where it engages, as well as a few other um, 
layers of, of brain function. And uh, I believe they were focusing on the prefrontal cortex, which is where um, people make decisions. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the person would lay inside of the MRI, and they would be given a, uh, two clickers, one in their left hand, one in their right hand. And at, uh, like, half-second intervals, like 500 milliseconds, a letter would be flashed in front of their face randomly. And what the subject was told to do was to... Once they see a letter, they can't pick the letter beforehand in their mind. Once they see a letter, they react to it, and they choose left hand or right hand, which one they're going to click. And all the letters were there for was a timing mechanism for the uh, observers so that they could track um, the time, the reaction time. So let's say Spencer's in this MRI, and we're flashing letters in front of his face, and he sees a G, and he thinks, okay, G, I choose my right hand. Boom. He clicks his right hand. Boom. So now... He saw G, certain amount of time passed before he was able to choose, and he clicked his right hand, and then the system stopped. And he told, tells the observers, I picked G. And they're able to count uh, the time from when he was aware of choosing G to when his right hand clicked to when his brain actually responded to this quote-unquote decision, this conscious decision that he made. And typically people would think, okay, I consciously choose my right hand, you will see my brain light up after this fact, then I will stop the machine. What they came to find out is that time and time and time again, uh, the brain actually indicated which hand the person was going to choose up to 10 seconds before the person was consciously aware of making that decision. Uh, and what this indicated was basically that your basic instinct of choice, your left hand, right hand, apple or banana, you know, chocolate or peach pudding, which I didn't know existed until now, that's not yours. You didn't pick that. You did not consciously construct that thought. That was a product of prior causes in your brain, which you also had no control over. So I think that was probably the, the capstone of my uh, determinism research. I think those type of studies, I was looking it up to fact check, and I think we got most of the details right. And they're called timing intentions compared to action studies. Mm. And there's been a lot of, soon was one of them, but there's even some more recent ones which have found that same hypothesis to be true repeatedly. Okay. And almost all of them follow the, a very similar process. Mm -hmm. uh, another flavor of that, another, see, you have like a dark peach and here's a light peach, was... <laughs> They would, they would have, without an fMRI involved, they would have a computer screen. I have to see if I remember these details right. And they would flash uh, symbols on it. And mm -hmm. the subject was told that they should click the space bar on a certain symbol, but not on, a, on a, another symbol. So they would go through, they go through like a, a series of 100 sim symbols, some of which would be the symbol to click, and some, most of them which would not be. And they would do that at different speeds with different people. So it all started off at a speed which the human brain could understand, mm -hmm. and they would go through it and click away, clicking the symbols which they thought were the symbol that they should be clicking. Then they were asked to guess from what you just did, how many symbols did you get right and how mm -hmm. many did you get wrong? And then do the numbers uh, to move it out. And that's how they got rid of the whole idea 
um, the whole problem, which was really supposed by the study, which is individuals lie. They want to uh. they, they bias themselves towards saying the right answers. So then they would speed the screen up mm -hmm. faster than the human eye could see it. So you'd have enough time in between symbols flashing to click the space bar or not. But mm -hmm. the symbol would flash so quickly that your mind didn't have time to process it through. And then they would be able to show by the speed which somebody would hit the, the space bar that their brain had already made the decision whether or not to hit the space huh. bar before it could have had time to process. Wow. Um, they've been able to measure how fast each uh -huh. neuron, well, each each nerve in your head runs. Right. So they can essentially calculate up the time it should take. Yeah. Um, and they would see that you would hit the space bar faster than you could have even potentially calculated yeah. the outcome. It's, wow. Yeah, it's all, wow. there's many different flavors, but the timing intentions as compared to action study seem to be the most clear and the most ready to understand. Right. This is a, a subject that I, I personally find um, some of the most magical and yet anti-magical. Yes. Uh, because yes. in this realm of, of uh, discovery of human intellect, it is really peeking behind the curtain, um, you know, seeing the wizard mm -hmm. behind all yeah. the knobs and dials and just completely ruining the magic trick because it is absolutely an illusion. And these, science, uh, these studies show time and again that this feeling that we have of autonomy, of uh, free will, is just that, it's an illusion. And yet to me that is absolutely so fascinating that we can employ this, uh, this mechanism that is the scientific method and break down these illusions. Um, so yeah, those, those are some really that's a, another interesting study that I was completely unaware existed, but I'm glad that there's more than just suit, yeah, because that's the only one list. that I yeah. reference all oh, the time. Yeah. Wow, okay. There's many, many, many. So I think now our job is to, uh, now that we've described what determinism is, how we got there, I think it's time for us to try and get the audience there. Now, uh, this is obviously probably not going to work for most of you because it's a, like I said, it's a very hard pill to swallow. I'm not saying this sanctimoniously, Spencer and I completely believe that we could be wrong, but we just don't think we are right now. I, Spencer Field, hold that I could be wrong, so help me God. <laughs> I, Nick Stumphauser, don't believe in God, but still think, <laughs> still think that I could be wrong. As I was saying that, I was wondering, I wonder how Nick's going to respond to this. <laughs> no, but we, we, we completely think that we, we could be wrong. We're just waiting for the science to, just, to disprove us. So like we said, uh, prove us wrong. But uh, the syllogism that... I think we both came to agree on, and the, and the one that we employ in roundtable discussions to try and convince the average layperson begins in the realm of thought, moves to the realm of self, and culminates in the conclusion that free will necessarily cannot exist. Yeah, I think we normally jump into physics somewhere along there for a brief probably stop. Probably. I think while I'm happy to engage in this conversation, I have found so often with having this conversation with you and with all the people who are present or by myself for the last several years that oftentimes it's not the, the information which people need to hear. Many times, mm -hmm. actually, I think people have heard the information before and they've just choose, chosen to forget about it or not mm -hmm. pull an effective theory out of it. Oftentimes, I find people have a question which they need answered mm -hmm. in this particular topic. So I think we engage and give people the information they need to know build for them the syllogisms which they need to have, mm -hmm. but also be aware and audience be aware for yourselves that there is probably going to be questions that arise yeah, that you will need to have answered yeah. by somebody who maybe knows a little bit more or 
heaven help you, maybe when you're sitting at this di dining table, you can have a laptop in front of you yeah. uh, going out and doing a little bit of research yourself. I mean, it, thankfully for the internet, it, as long as all your fingers work, or at least one of your fingers work, it's usually a pretty easy time. For sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. I um, After I kind of got, quote-unquote, on board with determinism, it uh, it's still not easy. It's something that you kind of have to, like, agree with and let it sit and marinate in the back of your head and have that be the filter by which you experience the world and over time you will come to uh, realize that this makes more sense than libertarian free will and mm -hmm. for the audience uh, the opposite of hard determinism is libertarian free will uh, the concept that you could do whatever you want whenever you want um, and so yeah let it sit in your brain don't just completely reject it at first kind of just ruminate on it and uh, I think eventually the idea will become a little less scary and a little more uh, clear yeah I think the idea is allow it to be true you don't have to subscribe to it right but just allow the possibility of existence right. to be and then see what happens right or reject it outright right you'd be That's a good American you. yep you can be a good American sure. by rejecting it outright yes yes okay so to begin I think uh, do we want to sort of begin with a thought experiment for the audience. And what if we gave a this a scenario which we then use to break down? I'm wondering if we should do the scenario or the syllogism first. Because we already have like the syllogism in our heads. Or at least I do. Okay, let's do the syllogism first. Okay, so the syllogism that I have in my head, correct me if you disagree, is uh, thoughts become actions. And actions cannot be unless they were previously thoughts now I'm not referring to instincts I'm not referring to somebody throws a punch and you flex your abs so that you don't get injured that's an instinct that's just a gut reaction pun intended uh, I'm talking about somebody sets before you a plate of various puddings and it is your prerogative which one you want and you you just ruminate on this for 15 minutes and then you decide on this light California peach pudding yes my uh, favorite that decision was born of a thought. So that action is a thought. Uh, thoughts are not authored by the thinker. Therefore, actions are not authored by the thinker. Sort of a rough outline of the syllogism. Basically, if you don't control what you're thinking, you also do not control what you're doing. Now I go ahead. Okay, I think that is true, and I would I'd put that on the table and say true point in yeah. sort of sign this is true i think the idea of determinism is most easily ratified and most easily saw outside of the human person because as soon as i bring me or another human into this my emotions flare and say no you can't be imposing that you know thought process that structure on mm -hmm. me so i might propose a different syllogism which is not actually a syllogism it's more of a thought experiment saying Please do. that we see this idea of cause and effect throughout our universe mm -hmm. i pu push a bowling ball down a bowling lane and it strikes the pins i don't wonder what caused the pins to fall down i know it was the bowling ball right. doing that now if i push the same bowling ball down the same lane and it wobbles to the left I won't go, my goodness, there must have been a magical fairy which pushed it to the left. Maybe I'd go look at the playback, i see that the ball had a spin. Or maybe i see that when I examine the floor, the floor had a bump in it, which caused my ball to spin one way. And we can keep adding on layer after layer after right. layer and see that when the ball hit those pins in that particular way, 
it did so because it left my hand in the way that it did, it touched the floor in the way that it did, the wind affected it in the way that it did, the spin affected it in the way that it did, the construction affected it, so and so on, and so on and so forth. And most people will find that to be true. Right. Now, as soon as you break out of the reality of what we can see and you start moving down to the subatomic level, right. go get a, a, a university of physicists in there and have them measure through whatever means necessary all of the atoms and all of the parts which are connected to it and give them a computer bigger than what we have now and the ability to measure every element more than what we have now. And we can tell you exactly down to the nanometer where that bowling ball is going to strike the pin. At any point in time. At any point in time. And if you want to change any one of those variables, we will know. Yeah. Now let's bring the human into this element. Mm -hmm. So most people, I think audience, I don't know, you can stand up now and walk out if you feel so led. (laughs) Um, But most people will agree with that. So then I think is where we make this jump to the human. Saying that when the human throws the ball, the question is, could that human have thrown the ball in any other way but what they did? And when you you know swarm the scientists around the human now, you bring in a couple of new ones, and you can see what their muscular structure is, and what how their skeletal structure is, and how you know what their hormone levels were, right. and how. Now before you get any yeah, further on yeah, that, yeah, let me, me just no for the sake of the audience. So yes or no, Spencer, did that person pick their skeletal structure, their muscle density? Did they pick that? Did they? No, they certainly didn't pick it. I'm going to play devil's advocate now, saying could they have affected it? Yes, certainly they can affect it. Oh, interesting. That's like a, another layer. Yeah, it is. But it, but can just you say Inception. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what that was meant to show is basically like, um, you know, when do they start choosing, if ever? Right, and so I, that was yeah. I just opened up a door which I should not have opened up. Oops. All right, I'm gonna close that door. We'll go back to it later. We'll come back to that door later. Uh, oops, that's the first door. All right, you're, we're going to pass many other doors to get to the conclusion, so audience know that whenever you want to bail, you can jump out of any one of these doors. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of like a, an airplane. Lots of doors. Hopefully you don't jump out, though. <laughs> the, the individual now is about to throw the ball, and if we have the ability to measure what's going on in the brain, every electrical impulse, right. every atom of every chemical floating around in their brain and know exactly how those elements were to work together, we could tell you just down to the smallest detail exactly how that ball would be thrown. So now we have the scenario of this human picking up this bowling ball, throwing it down the lane and striking the pins, and assuming we can measure all of that, Mm -hmm. then we would be able to predict the end result of how the bowling ball would strike strike the pin. The wiggle room in this is if you believe in something other than physical matter or something other than electrical energy or something other than um, I, that those are probably the That's two, the two those yeah, are the two then then you could find the wiggle room out of right. this i would disagree that there is that wiggle room but i think many people who do believe in the metaphysics of decision making would twist their shoulders and elbow their way and try and get that wiggle room i don't think there is uh but I know people will. So if so, I just wanted to make sure, sure I'm understanding you. If there was a third thing, whatever right. that third thing is, you know, the cosmic energy of the universe yes. or whatever, which yes. is not electrical in nature, don't you think if when we look at energy and matter, we see that they are very predictable because they follow laws. Yes. If there's a third element, yes. which does not follow laws, do you s- still believe in determinism, hard determinism? No. Okay. So here's why, uh, and 
I'm going to use the concept of the soul because I think that's the most widely accepted way that people get out of the concept of determinism. I, I agree. They would say, okay, yeah, but I have a soul. I have this life force in me, whether it's from Allah or Yeshua or whoever it is. I have this, this part of me that's not physical, but it's the most me that there is. Mm -hmm. And at the last second where all those scientists are hooking me up with wires and my arms stretched back to throw that pin, I'm going to say, oh, no, not doing it. And I set down the ball and I walk away because I have a soul and I have the power to do that, right? And that's what they would say. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, that concept of the soul being able to do something other than what they were about to do uh, is, first of all, it's unfalsifiable. But second of all, there's no reason to believe that. And finally, there's no room in which to insert that hypothesis. Uh, and I believe that all of what science has shown us so far about the brain and how it functions and how we make decisions tightens the noose on on how how much wiggle room you have with this concept of the soul. So, for example, uh, a lot of times people say like, oh, you know, if you're depressed, you just have this spiritual, you know, you have this spiritual issue. Uh, if you just rectify that, you know, your your distance with God you will no longer be depressed, you will no longer be down. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, doctor comes along, examines the brain, says you actually have very, very low serotonin levels. We're gonna give you this supplement. And they take the supplement and then they're no longer depressed. They're no longer down in the dumps. So my question is where in there can you squeeze the soul? Where can you squeeze in the non-physical aspect of, of the problem or the solution into what was solved? I don't see any room for the soul in any capacity, no matter what uh, properties you give it for operating in this world, to actually do anything physically uh, or, or to, to affect anything physically, if that is throwing the bowling ball or, or picking a pudding. Um, no uh, capacity of the soul can ever be demonstrated. Okay, can I? I for I, sure. I, there's. I can answer that question or we can move on because I do think I have an answer to that question. Mm -hmm. One of an idea of which I've wanted to run past you for a week or two. Go for it. I think that'd be interesting. Okay, here we go. Hold on, audience. Buckle up. You know, <laughs> click that seatbelt in and grab some pudding. Uh, <laughs> I think we need to call this the pudding episode. Just, yes. Just, just editor's note, pudding episode. Uh, I When I look at this, I, w I was affected by a quote said by a creationist uh, several months back, which I read. Wow. Uh, there you go. Imagine this is a that. great start. All right, here you go. Hold on. Nick. <laughs> Nick just said, whatever Spencer's going to say for the next 15 minutes just went out the window. No. Uh, and he said this. He said, back in the 80s, if somebody wanted to be entirely reasonable about making the determination about whether evolution or creationism was correct, based on the scientific evidence we had, it was more reasonable to believe in evolution than creationism. Then, of course, he quickly went on to say that the scientific evidence today does not point to that fact. Right. But rather, he said, which was interesting to me, because that shows, at least to me, that what we believe is based on the evidence we have. Absolutely. And the evidence we have, at least the way we're using evidence, is almost always based on what we can measure. Yes. So here's, here's where the jump might happen. Okay. I'm not super strong in this argument, so right. this is not Spencer saying you're wrong, Nick. This is what if. Right. When If we rewind back to, say, the 1300s, yeah. we didn't have a little multimeter I could go over Harbor Freight and buy for 15 cents and you know measure whatever electrical volts I wanted to. And if somebody proposed the idea of electricity, be that a lightning bolt or mm -hmm. be that static electricity or be that 
uh, a lemon and some copper or whatever, right. or electroplating or whatever other forms of electricity would be available given that time, we would look at them, or at least I probably would look at them and scoff. Absolutely. And say, Preposterous. that's absolutely, the same way that I would probably look at the idea of energy as, yeah. as the cosmic force and scoff and say, preposterous, absolutely yes. preposterous. And it's because we could not measure it. So here's where this plane starts to land. There might be something, and I, mm -hmm. I will stand by the statement, there might be something, and given our current state of technological advancement, I would be willing to bet there is something. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but there probably is something that we have yet to measure. Mm -hmm. And in about 100 years or 200 years or however long it is until we can measure it, uh, we will scoff at that idea and say preposterous, absolutely right. preposterous. And then my great-grandchild will look back at me and, you know, lower his head and grimace to think that his father didn't grandfather didn't believe in whatever right. just as i look back at my great 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 grandparents and say i can't believe you didn't believe in electricity right here's where i think the room specifically is we have yet to be able to demonstrate in this this bowling ball scenario that we can actually predict it our tools are not refined enough and we've never been able to actually predict one of these outcomes now we theoretically could because we measure all of these individual elements, but we have yet to create an equation where all of these elements come together. Okay, sink my boat, but I'm going to continue sailing it <laughs> with my flag held out like George Washington crossing the Delaware until, <laughs> until you sink my boat. We have yet to produce one of these scenarios where we've measured every element and been able to predict an outcome. Now, we may have done this on a small level, but we have yet to do this on a human-sized mm -hmm. level. So given that, I think when I look into this box, I say, we haven't actually done this, and there might be something we don't measure. So given that, mm -hmm. there's the possibility that there's something we don't know about, sure. that we can't currently measure it, and that we have yet to perform one of these studies at a human-sized level to completion, mm -hmm. I would see that there's a potential, not that I actually agree with, but that there's at least the potential for some right. third force. All right, now break out your cannon and sink my ship before I land and take over kick those gosh darn British people out of my country. So you gave three uh, three sort of caveats at the end there. You said um, it's not it could be not measurable, but it w might be in the future. And then you, you listed two other things. Listeners could rewind. I can't remember exactly what you just said. Yeah. So I said we haven't done it to a human-sized scale yet. Right. Um, we There may be something out there which we can't measure. Yeah. So there may be something. Maybe the second. something. And then the third thing would be it's – it's, and we can't measure that thing right. now. Right now. Yes. Yeah. I believe that those are three very good reasons to not believe in something, to not ascribe belief in something. I concur. So uh, that would be that would be my first cannonball in the side of your, your Well, boat. I would say that one just landed by and went kaploosh because when I'm looking at this, I'm not saying this is true. My goal here is not to prove the mm -hmm. existence of this third thing. That's not what I want to take out of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Rather, I want to say, to be the most intellectually honest, I need to admit the possibility. I don't think that is what heralds intellectual honesty. Well, because I'm there's not referring to heralds, but well, continue on. Uh, to admit the possibility of various solutions to a problem or, or any possibility, you fall into the same trap that Anselm did that... Um, C.S. Lewis did just that. Uh, if you can conceive of this possible entity, therefore, it is a possibly valid solution. And I don't think that is true whatsoever. It's also Russell's teapot. That was the third person who sort of came up with this idea. 
And that is, uh, if it's unfalsifiable, and it's even more so uh, made up. And I'm not saying that there wasn't reason for this to, to be believed, but mm -hmm. the concept of a soul is, is clearly a, a... It's not like we looked outside, we saw a tree, and we're like, ah, Aha, leaves. There we go. You know? We came up with this idea. No, you cannot pin down the soul. No, I agree. Uh, and so because it is unfalsifiable and because we have so many other reasons to believe that you're depressed because you have low serotonin or that you got a strike because of the spin of the ball and its trajectory, mm -hmm. I just there's nothing inside of me that's even remotely pushing me toward this concept of, of a metaphysical reality to get anything done in this world, to have any effect be caused. Final nail in that coffin that I think before we move on uh, is how could anything non-physical impact the physical world? How could anything that is not of this world manifest itself in this world? And I think that in and of itself is a bigger question that needs to be answered before you can say, ah, soul did it. That's why I picked whatever pudding it was. Because the soul in me I think it was a light California peach. Light California peach. Yep. Uh, you know, what ghost can pull the levers of the physical world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there is a wizard behind the curtain. What is the mechanism of yes, interaction? exactly. There is a wizard behind the curtain, but the wizard is the physical world. Right. It's not a ghost. The ghost cannot, its, it's hands are going through the levers, you know? So I think that's where um, I personally just, n nothing's twisting my arm to even give the, the concept of a soul or, or any astral or a cosmicness, uh, any credence whatsoever. Well, I think there's a lot more that I could say. My brain is I'm coming sure. up with all, but I, sure. I will make just one final caveat, and then we can move on to our, our next step yes. of this program. I would say that while there may not be anything twisting your arm, yeah. and while there may be an extraordinarily large amount of evidence for a purely two-element, you could say one-element, a physical world, right. There may, be, which I would probably subscribe to. While both of those could be held true, at least for me, I think that it would not be intellectually honest to at least admit the possibility. Because when I see a when I see something which would, however much jumping need to happen, yeah. answer all of the given questions, uh, then I think it, okay. I don't have to subscribe. But I must admit that it might be. Okay, I think this, what you just said, is actually more interesting than what I was going to say next. So I'm going to follow you down that real quick. Okay. And that is, why? So what is it about the soul, or about whatever this metaphysical property is, that to you is so enticing, it is so, uh, it has so much explanatory power over this situation of how we make decisions in day-to-day -day life, that you will, uh, leap that chasm and say it's a possibility i'm not disregarding it yet what is it about that concept that motivates you to think this is this could be reasonable i don't know that's a question of introspection and i don't know that i know the answer to that question so i'll do my best to answer it knowing that i may not even have the capability of answering it currently and i highly uh, suggest that the audience do exactly what spencer's doing right now very introspectively yes i concur pause the audio come back in about three hours when you yes. have your life figured out <laughs> <laughs> i would say that when i the way i choose to reason is to lay out all possibilities which are on the table e everyone everything i can come up with 
and then take all of the evidence I have and, and then hold up this possibility to the evidence and say, does this, does this possibility meet the evidence that I have and kind of do a, a test to like mm-hmm. overlay the possibility on top of the evidence. Yeah. Then I choose the possibility which best overlays with the evidence that I have. Right. What I then do is say, this is, at least for now, given the evidence I have, the possibility I will choose to use my effective theory, which is a, an idea I hope to talk about at the end of our conversation. Yeah. This is my effective theory that I use. Now, when I do that, I don't take all of those other possibilities which are on the table and put them through the shredder. I allow them to be on the table because oh, at, sure, yeah. as I grow and as I learn, there may be new evidence that I find or one reason or another to pick up a, a different perspective and do this. And I think we do this all day long. We have maybe some major perspectives which we use, but I would say that all of us have rooms and rooms and rooms full of possible explanations for the world and we're constantly overlaying them to test yes. the world, some more actively than others. Um, I hope that I'm somebody who's pretty actively trying to overlay that, gather more evidence, overlay possibilities, and try to figure out which possibilities are the closest to reality. So when I look at this question of, is there just this, this physical world? Mm-hmm. It, I think that there are many ways you could look at this, but there's probably two big possibilities sitting on the table. And I would pick up the first possibility of a purely uh, physical reality and overlay it with the evidence that I have and say this fits pretty well. And I also want to make clear to make sure that the audience is not ascribing intentions to me. I think I would hold that reality currently. Like as I'm sitting here recording this, I would say I probably hold that reality because as I pick up the evidence I have and overlay the possibility, it fits the best. At the same time, if I look to my right, I can still see that other possibility on the table. But when I pick it up, it doesn't quite overlay with the evidence as well. So instead of saying, this is no longer a possibility, this is outside of the realm of reason, Mm -hmm. and say, I refuse to reject the possibility that this exists, I say, given the evidence I have, I don't think it's reasonable, and I put it back down on the table. Mm -hmm. Then, whenever I meet somebody who chooses to overlay that second principle, that there's something more than the physical world, onto the reality, I don't, I try not to at least, not always very successfully, scoff and say, you fool, you're doing this out of an emotionally driven motivation Mm -hmm. based on some, you know, upbringing or some fear or whatever, and I, which is almost always the case, by the way, is almost always the case, but instead I try to look at, be able to look at the evidence they have and look at the way they're overlaying and see if that's reasonable. So, to answer your question of why I see the allure of that, is I don't know that I, I, that I understand the allure of it to myself yet. I don't even know that I'm actually allured to it. But because of the way I structure my reasoning, I refuse to take that opportunity off the table mm-hmm. because I think to do so is foolhardy for this or any other opportunity, gotcha. including turtle on top of turtle on top of turtle. <laughs> okay, interesting, interesting. If I were to follow that same line of reasoning, it's just the... I don't know that I take it off the table. It's just every time I pick it up and try and overlay it to the evidence, I see no unison. I, I don't see any um, explanatory power or alignment with reality. Which is okay. Yeah. Like, and I think that I, I would, you and I are probably on that same boat. Right. I am, and, and when I do that, and I don't know how you do this because you haven't explained it to me, right. but when I look at that, I don't go, 
with disgust and dishonor for say, sure. this is ridiculous, yeah. out the window, right. I don't even want to have this possibility on the table. Right. And I think, at least for me, I try to, on a semi-regular basis, pick that, that perspective back up, mm-hmm. try to re-overlay it on the evidence. Right. And I think that is part of intellectually being intellectually honest and being human, too, yes. is to be able to say, I will cognizantly, with intention, say, I could be wrong now, yeah. and not only say that uh, in giving it lip service, but also trying to try right. out other different right. perspectives. You have to do that. You have to try and prove yourself wrong. As, yeah. hard, as, you know, as much as it might hurt your pride, you have to do that. Right. Um, I know we're running short on time, so I kind of want to push us toward the end of the syllogism here, and that is uh, how thoughts become actions, how we do not author our thoughts, and therefore we do not author our actions. Yes, I think this is a great segue into a place where we won't get, which is the ethical ramifications of this, right. which yeah. maybe is a part two or maybe is just I, a conversation. I, thinking about this now, I think uh, we absolutely could dive back into determinism in another episode Yes. Um, and talk about what happens once you do believe in determinism. What does that mean for society? Right. Um, should you actively hold that belief? Because yep. I believe Spencer and I both, uh, just to titillate your interest for the, for the next episode, um, we are hard determinists, but we operate deceitfully to ourselves yes. as libertarian free will yes. people because we deceive ourselves uh, because we find it more effective. We'll get into that later, but just to wrap up the syllogism. So um, this, I would turn the audience very quickly toward um, all of Sam Harris's work on free will. I think he's been the most prolific person, prolific author speaking out against the concept of free will, but doing so in a way that's not um, offending to what it means to be a human and to experience the world, but more enlightening. Um, and, and the way he goes about describing this is uh, a lot of introspection, a lot of introspection about your own thoughts, and really trying to tack down exactly where a thought originates from. And every single time you attempt to trace back the origin of a thought, it gets immediately foggy, immediately murky, and you realize it was just kind of there, you know? And his basic um, line of reasoning for why we don't author our thoughts is because if we did, if we were the writer of our thoughts, that would require us to have written them before we wrote them. If I wanted to think about um, a rainbow, or pudding. Or pudding. I, I was going to use pudding, but we've been using that all night. Oh, all just day. continue. Oh, right. Just continue. If I wanted to think it's about pudding. pudding. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, that would require me to have consciously made an effort to say, if, if I were truly free to think about whatever I wanted, and I wanted to think about pudding, I would have then had to have thought about thinking about pudding first, and then thought about thinking about thinking about pudding, and so on and so forth down the line. And that is an impossible infinite regress. What is possible is a demonstrably... Um, empirical state of the brain that gives rise to thoughts and that state of the brain changes second to second you know millisecond to millisecond Um, he uses the example if I suddenly started talking about owls you would have no idea where that came from you know where to you that was just me it just came out of nowhere but if you try to do the same thing and just think about something right now Eiffel Tower. Okay, now you're thinking about the Eiffel Tower. Where did that come from, though? 
if you truly try and track it down, you realize that your subconscious mind is just sort of throwing forth this cacophony of of different uh, of I- different inspirations and um, bits of thought, and we're just sort of this dude in a rowboat flowing over uh, the the raucous seas of our of our subconscious mind, just observing um, these thoughts, and that we're not actually the authors of them. And if that's the case, which I encourage the audience to do some serious introspection, uh, research Sam Harris's works on this, um, and research this, the science behind it that we've been talking about, the fMRI scans and whatnot. If that's the case, then how can you choose what pudding? How can you choose left hand or right hand? Um, and actually jumping real quick back, you said uh, we have yet to be able to predict anything like that at the human level. We can with, with those. We can predict left hand or right hand. Because we do have that ten second buffer. If you jumped in there, okay. Unfortunately, the result the results come out afterward. No, no, no. The results come out afterward. Yeah. So you can look at somebody's brain and say their brain yes. fired this side or that side, but there was something which caused their brain to fire left or right. Mm-hmm. Like I can't sit them down in a room and go, they're gonna go left, left, right, 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 left, left, right, left, left, right. Go. I'll prove it. Mm-hmm. We can once their brain has fired. We can measure it and go, oh, they're going to click this in about three seconds. So we have that little gap there. That's all I need, though. Uh, that's maybe all you need. But I would say that there's something, because here's here's where the wiggle room is. All right, audience, all right, we're going to have to end this one here. We're going to end this on an argument. Ready? Is that there was something which caused those neurons right. to do something, and you would attribute it to subconscious. Right. I would just attribute it to the prior state of the I, brain. And I probably would too, however, ever, if somebody was to make an argument, I would say, well, something chose to stimulate those those particular neurons to fire. So while you could trace back, button push back 10 seconds, you know, that group of neurons mm-hmm. there, we have yet to go back before that group of neurons and say, this is what caused those neurons to fire. Let's say there was an entity that did choose to cause those neurons to fire. What caused that entity to choose that? What was the motivating factors within that entity? Is it pure decision? Is it just pure choice? And if so, think about that concept. Is that even free? Thank you for joining us on Blacklisted Remarks. Tune in again next time when we will hopefully reopen this Pandora's box of determinism, delve back into what happens to this idea in society as a universal acid. Thank you once again. My name is Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Field, encouraging you to disrupt your dinner table. Oh, and eat pudding. <laughs>